I would invite you to uh, take your copy of God's Word and, and open it once more to the letter to the Hebrews. This uh, sermon-like letter or letter-like sermon, most scholars aren't really sure which one it is. Is it a letter? Is it a sermon? Is it both? The answer is probably yes. Hebrews chapter 13 this morning in verses 17 through 19. That'll be our focus today. You've probably heard the expression that art imitates life. This is a, it's an Aristotelian, it's a, it's a Platonic observation that art, which is a, uh, whether it's sculpture or painting or even music, in some way, shape, or form, mimics something else in reality. Now, the advantage to every great artist or composer or uh, sculptor is not necessarily their inherent talent, their ability to create things. The great advantage that every great artist has is forms and figures that they have to study and to recreate. The greatest advantage that they have are, are, are examples to mimic in their art. Art imitates life. Folk rock musician Annie DeFranco said, art may imitate life, but life imitates TV. And that's a topic for a whole other discussion, but... Art imitates life, and the, the, the advantage, the, the, the upshot, the, the profit, the, uh, the, the, the cutting edge, if you will, of all great artists is that they have great things to observe. Here in verses 17 through 19 of Hebrews 13, the author of Hebrews, having spent several chapters leading us to observe the supremacy of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who reveals all, perfectly all of the character of the Father, who is the greater priest, the greater sacrifice, the one who brings an unshakable kingdom. After having spent all of this time pointing us to Jesus, he now, the author now, uh, shifts our attention to seeing, uh, to looking at what relationships and what life as Christians, as those who follow Jesus, look like. And here in these verses, 17 through 19, the author shows us that Christ-centered relationships between Christians and their leaders are meant for the advantage, for the upshot, for the fruitfulness, for the overall beauty of the whole church. That when church members, when Christians and their leaders relate to one another uh, appropriately, it is good and fruitful for them. And at their very best, Christian relationships, intra-church relationships, At their very best, they are imitating something greater. They are imitating the person of Jesus. They are imitating our divine Savior, who the author of Hebrews has been pointing us to all the way along. The main idea from our text this morning is this, that the character of Christ is the church's advantage. That's our advantage. The advantage of the artist is great things to observe. The advantage of the church is observing the character of Christ as we seek to relate to one another. And so as we see this on display in these verses, I hope that we would pursue then together a Christ-shaped relationship as a church so that we will have all of the advantages of Christian community that God and His Word promises. Would you stand with me as we honor God by reading His Word, Hebrews 13, verses 17 through 19. Our author continues, he says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you all the sooner. This is God's word. You may be seated. The character of Christ is the church's advantage. Let me just be 
transparent with you this morning. There are some passages of Scripture that I would much rather have someone else preach to you. This discussion about how, how Christians relate to their leaders and how leaders relate to the Christians that they lead is, uh, I'll just say it's, it's not always easy for a Christian leader to, to preach about. And yet, it's the next text. It's the next, the next verses in line here. And so we want to be faithful to God's Word and preach all of it. The character of Christ is the church's advantage. And the author of Hebrews fleshes out this idea by speaking about uh, 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 followers and leaders. And so we're going to look at these verses through those two lenses. First of all, Christ-shaped followers. The author of Hebrews tells us what Christ-shaped followers do. First of all, they submit to their leaders. Christ-shaped followers submit to their leaders. That's how the Uh, our passage begins. Verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. These two commands, obey and submit, let's be honest, are not words that we like to use in our Western American context. I'm an adult. I live in a free country. I'll do whatever I want. Thank you very much. Nobody's going to tell me to obey them unless they're giving me some sort of financial remuneration in return. I'll obey my boss because he signs my paycheck, but I won't obey anybody else because I don't owe anybody anything. That's kind of our Western sentiment often. Submission. I'm not going to be a doormat to anybody's desires. We read those words, obey and submit, and, and I'll be honest, even in my own soul, I kind of just push back against that. Nevertheless, these are the words that God and his word uses to speak to Christians and how they relate to their leaders. Now let's speak a little bit for a moment about what obedience and submission mean in this context. As we saw several uh, months ago at the beginning of the year, looking at how God brings the church together, how he organizes and assembles his church with uh, pastors and uh, pastor elders and deacons and church members and how they all serve one another in some way, shape or form. We talked about at that time that obedience and submission to leaders is not blanket uh, uh, submission to the will of somebody else's irrespective of whether it's right or wrong. It's not being a doormat to someone else's desires, but rather the obedience and submission that God speaks about in scripture that he calls Christians to have toward their leaders is, is kind of a willing permission to be led. Right? So to obey and submit does not mean do whatever they tell you irregardless, or that's not even a word. I hate that word, irregardless. Irrespective of what the leaders tell you to do, but to be willing to be led by them. Now, this is not because leaders are better or higher. It's not that because pastors, elders, deacons are first-class Christians and everybody else is somehow you know, down here, but the leaders are up here. We, the, the submission does not occur in that regard because leaders are, are, are better or more perfect or whatever, but rather because God has called them to care for the church, to lead the church, and he calls them through the affirmation of the church. Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul is speaking there to the elders, the leaders of the church in Ephesus, and he says, be careful to pay close attention to the flock of God over which he has made you overseers. The call of God to leaders to care for the church, to watch over the church is a call that comes from God, but it's affirmed through the church as they see the call of God in the lives of individuals and say, yes, we want you to lead us. This idea of obedience and submission to leaders also speaks, about, or speaks to the kind of authority that pastors and uh, elders have in the life of the church. There are two kinds of authority, essentially, that exist in the world. On the one hand, you have authority of command. This is the kind of authority that parents have over their children. 
Authority of command is to say, you will do this, and if you don't, there will be consequences, and I'm going to make good and sure that you do what I'm telling you to do, right? The authority of command is, is the authority to tell someone to do something and to ensure that they get it done. On the other hand, you have authority of counsel, which is uh, not so much a parent to a child, but maybe a parent to their grown child who is uh, independent, out on their own. A parent can't necessarily impose particular actions on the life of their grown child, but they can say, let me tell you, this is what I think is right. This is what I think is best. Here's the direction that I would counsel you to go. Now, whether or not you do it, that's kind of up to you. But speaking from a position of experience, this is what I think is right and best. When it comes to those kinds of authority, authority of command or authority of counsel, pastors, elders, leaders in the church, like the ones that the author of Hebrews is talking about, they have authority of counsel, not authority of command. So as one of your pastors, I don't have the authority to tell you this is what you have to do and I'm going to make good and sure that you do it, you know, come hell or high water, and if you don't, there's going to be these consequences. I don't have that kind of authority, not biblically. But we do have, as leaders, authority of counsel to say, God's word says this, Because God's word says this, and we believe that God's word is our final authority for all things pertaining to life and godliness, we think that this is the best thing to do. Now, as church members, as Christians, you you could totally rebel against that, that counsel. Yet, that's the kind of authority that pastors, that leaders have, and that's the kind of authority that the author of Hebrews is calling the church to submit to, obey their counsel, follow their leading, because God has called them to do this. Christ-shaped followers submit to their leaders, not because leaders are better or higher, but because God has called them. And because their leaders, because of what their leaders do, their leaders are watching out for their souls. Soul care, as verse 17 says, they're keeping watch over your souls as those will have to give an account. Soul care is at the deepest heart of the job description of Christian leadership. This is what you really need from your pastors. You don't need someone to give you an, an inspiring talk on a Sunday morning about fixing your finances, uh, about how to relate to your husband or your wife. You don't need a political pep talk on a Sunday morning from your pastor leaders. What you need is care for your soul. You need people who care about your holiness, who, who, who care about your salvation, who care about your maturity as a Christian as you follow Christ. That's what leaders are called to do, and that's what's at the heart of what it means to be a pastor, an elder, a leader in the church. So when we as Christians demonstrate a willingness to be shaped spiritually by our leaders, to listen to their biblical counsel, we make it a joy for them to do what they've been called to do. Verse 17, they're, obey your leaders, submit to them, they're keeping watch over your souls, as those will have to give an account, so let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So when we demonstrate willingness to listen to our our leaders, to hear their counsel, to heed their counsel, to see how their counsel comports with God's word and then apply it to our lives, we make it a joy for our pastors to lead. When we demonstrate an unwillingness to be shaped spiritually by those that we have affirmed God's call to lead us, we make the work of our pastors a drudgery. And how many of us know of beaten down, resisted pastors groaning under the burden of a congregation who neither trusts nor follows them? And we look at those pastors and we say, they're hardly very good soul nurturers. In part because they've not been allowed to nurture souls, but also in part because their hearts have become so hardened by those who have resisted them for so long that they don't even enjoy nurturing souls anymore. Know this, pastors are not called to 
answer to or to give a defense to those that they lead, but they give a defense to God. Our pastors, our leaders will answer to God for how we have led those that he has called us and who have asked us to lead them. They watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account, have to answer to God for how they cared for the flock that he called them to lead. Christ-shaped leaders, uh, followers submit to their leaders, and Christ-shaped followers also pray for their leaders. Look at verse 18. Pray for us, the author says. Pray for us. And the author's desire here for prayer is so that it seems that he's been separated from uh, the congregation that, that he is writing to for some period of time. Perhaps he was in prison for his faith. He does say, pray that we may be restored to you all the sooner. So perhaps he was imprisoned and recently released and he's, he's wanting to return to the church to encourage them in person. But he's asking for their prayer. Please pray for us. There's nothing that your leaders need more from you than your prayer for them. Christ-shaped followers pray for their leaders in lots of different ways. They, first of all, pray for their holiness, pray for their sanctification. They pray that, that their lives would reflect the very character of Christ who has saved us. We saw in 1 Timothy chapter 3, there as Paul is giving Timothy these uh, descriptions of what overseers, what pastor elders look like, we saw that all of them, except for the ability to teach, were all character-related. The character, the life of the leader must look, needs to look like Christ because they are to be as examples to us, to follow, to imitate as well. Not so that we would become like them, but so that we we would have a, a helpful model to follow as we grow closer to Christ. So pray for your leader's holiness. Pray also for your leader's confidence before God. Verse 18 says, we're sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. The author of Hebrews wants to do everything to please God, even in how he leads the church to whom he is writing. But we all know that fear of man will keep us from doing very often what God has called us to do. You know what fear of man is. You probably have a little bit of it in you yourself. Fear of man looks like being afraid of uh, of being exposed, having your weaknesses or your shortcomings exposed by somebody else. So you hide them in order to uh, give a presentable imitation of yourself to other people. Fear of man sometimes looks like fear of being rejected by others. How How many of us have fear of man when it comes to evangelism and sharing the gospel with other people? I don't share the gospel because I don't want them to say no. I don't want to be rejected. I don't want to lose a friend. Fear of man may may also be expressed in fear of being attacked by other people, either for your faith or for your convictions. Everybody struggles with fear of man. Listen, so so do your leaders. Paul speaks about the importance of not giving in to fear of man. In Galatians 1 verse 10, he says, Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. If your leaders are going to be servants of Christ and give an account to God, you need to pray that they would lead with confidence before God. We need to pray for them that they would fear God, revere God, love God more than they love the praise of people. Pray for your leaders' holiness. We, we pray for their confidence before God and we pray for their well-being. Verse 18 says, pray for us. We want to do everything honorably. And in verse 19 says, I urge you to pray the more earnestly to do this so that we can be restored to you sooner. The author of Hebrews knows that the prayer of people for their leaders is effective, that it works. And so he says, please pray for us. 
Now he's, want, he's asking for them to, be, to pray for him so that he can be restored to them so that he can rejoin their congregation sooner. But there are lots of other effective ways that you can pray, that we can pray for our pastors. We can pray for their marriage and their home life in terms of their well-being. A pastor's first ministry is not to his church. It's to his wife, to his children, if he's married and has them. If a pastor's marriage, if a pastor's home life is a mess, his ministry will be a wreck too. So let's pray for our pastors, for their marriages to be healthy, to be God-honoring. Let's pray for their home life, for their children, for the salvation of their children, and for God's sanctification to work through that whole family. You can pray in terms of well-being for your pastors uh, that, that they would uh, not be lonely. Pastoral ministry can at times be exceptionally, especially lonely. There's lots of information that our pastors often have running through their minds, sensitive, confidential information about things that, that, they're, that members of their church are struggling with or working through, that, that, that having to hold all that information in confidence can be a very isolating experience. There are often times that they hold information in their minds that they can't process even with their wives because of the nature of the information that is there, and that can have a very uh, lonely uh, effect on their lives. So pray that pastors would... Uh, Pray against loneliness in their lives. Pray that God would bring good and trustworthy and faithful friends to come alongside your pastors. Pray for your pastor's ability to rest. All of us have a little bit of workaholic in us, don't we? All of us have that that thing that goes in our head at the end of the day that says you could have done a little bit more or you could have gone a little bit farther in this area. You've got two more hours left in the day today before it's midnight or 2 a.m. You know, you're not asleep yet. You can still be working. Pray that your pastors would have good rhythms of Sabbath rest in their life to be recharged by God in personal worship. And we can pray, too, for our pastors' well-being in terms of their mental health. We all know how difficult the last year has been with lockdowns and lots of decisions to make and having to work from home and, 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 and gating criteria for COVID reopening stuff, changing week to week or month to month. It's stressful And I would be lying to you today if I said that the last year was not the most anxious and sometimes depressing year that I've experienced in my life and in ministry. Listen, if you have have struggled with anxiety or depression over the last year because of all that's gone on in the world, you've got a friend in me, okay? I've been there. I can can sympathize. I, I know what it's like to wake up in the middle of the night with my chest tight, not knowing why I'm awake or why I'm freaked out, but that I am. All of us have several different kinds of mental health things that come up in life, and so do our pastors. We need to pray for them, that God would keep them mentally healthy. We need to be resources to them as well. Christ-shaped followers submit to their leaders, and they pray for their leaders. But listen, Christ-shaped followers do all of this. They submit to their leaders. They pray for their leaders because Jesus sets the example of submission. They do this because Jesus submits to the Father. They don't do this because pastors are better, because pastors are somehow more perfect Christians. They do it because Jesus sets the example for what submission looks like. Luke chapter 22, verse 42, Jesus is there in the garden of Gethsemane the night that he'll be betrayed by Judas, and he's praying with drops of blood coming out with his sweat. He prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. If ever there was a human in all of history, a person in all of history, who could have forced his will to be done, it was Jesus, God in flesh. 
He had all of the divine power of God to stop what was going to happen to him in his arrest, his betrayal, his crucifixion and death. And still he prays to God, not my will, but yours be done. This is a picture of willing submission. Now, there are innumerable hypothetical scenarios in which we could say to church members, do not submit, do not obey leaders who are abusive, leaders who fatten themselves by feeding on the flock of God, leaders who teach falsehood. Don't submit to leaders who are habitually deceptive or contentious or selfish or self-righteous or on and on and on and on and on. We could come up with innumerable examples of leaders not to submit to. But the reality is if we're more concerned with all the types of leaders in the church that we shouldn't submit to, then we are about modeling Jesus' submission to the leaders that we have, then we have probably misplaced our focus. The advantage of the church is the character of Christ. We as Christians learn how to submit to those that God has called to lead us because we have Jesus who models submission perfectly for us. Our author doesn't speak just to Christ-shaped followers. He also speaks to Christ-shaped leaders. He tells us in these verses that Christ-shaped leaders watch over souls with joy. That's what leaders do. We watch over souls with joy. Verse 17 says, let them do this. Let them watch over your souls with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. To watch over souls gladly, eagerly, is the attitude call of every pastor leader in the church. To watch over souls this way. To watch over the spiritual state of those that have called them to lead them gladly. And with a smile on their face, Peter says to the elders of the churches to whom he writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2, he says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Watch over souls with joy. So leaders, pastors, here's some things to help us to have joy as we watch over the souls that God has called us to watch over. First of all, consider who has called you. Now, the church has affirmed our call as leaders, yes, but ultimately it's God who has called us to be overseers. Like Acts chapter 20, verse 28 says, pay careful attention to the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Because God has placed you there. It's God's call in the life of the leader to watch over souls. Not any one individual, not even any particular body of believers, but God, the creator of the universe, who has said to us, watch over these for me. What a privilege. What an amazing honor. What a a humbling position to be in, to be called by God to watch over the souls of those that he has saved by his grace through faith in Jesus. Consider those, consider who has called you in order to watch over souls with joy. Also, consider those that you watch over. Pastors, we are leaders. We are not watching over a bunch of goats, but watching over the the sheep of Christ's flock. We are not watching over. uh, We're not watching over just anybody. We're watching over the blood bought, Christ redeemed people of God that Jesus gave His life to save. Are are they perfect? No, but neither are we. Are sheep sometimes stinky? Yes, but we're sheep too. Do sheep sometimes bite each other? Yeah, but these are Jesus' sheep. Right? What a joy. Consider those you watch over. 
It's good for pastors to think about not just where their churches are presently, but where their churches are going, the, the, the path of spiritual maturity that we're all on together. Think about where we are taking these that we are watching over. Consider those that you, that you care for because these are God's sheep that he has saved with the precious blood of Jesus. Third, consider the result of joyful leadership, which is maturity in Christ. Consider the end goal of your leading Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19, he says, what is our hope? What is our joy? What is our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? Paul considers when Christ comes again to call the church to himself, Paul thinks about what he will, what he will bring to Christ on that day. And what Paul knows that he will bring to Christ are all of these blessed believers that he has been leading along the way to say, Jesus, these are yours. This is my gift to you, my life spent in in bringing them to maturity. These are yours that you have called. These are yours that you've entrusted to me. And now, Lord Jesus, I present them to you in glory and honor and splendor. These are yours. Christ-shaped leaders watch over souls with joy because they they, they know the end result of their joyful leadership. Believers presented mature in Christ to their king when he comes. Christ-shaped leaders also, we learn from verses 18 and 19, live nobly. They live honorably among their brothers and sisters that have called to lead them. Verse 18, our author states, who himself is a leader in the church, states he has a clear conscience before God that in all that he does, he does with a desire to be honorable, to be commendable, to be noble in the Lord. We do all of this for the sake of him who has called us. And so we learn from that that godly leaders display a sincere desire to model and to demonstrate a life of sanctification worthy of imitation for those that they lead. Christ-shaped leaders live nobly. They they live as living examples of growing maturity in Christ for those that they teach and care for and are watching over. Now we know that living nobly, living commendably does not mean living perfectly. None of your pastors are sinless. Leaders rely upon and are not afraid to ask for, because they're not sinless, they're not afraid to ask for the prayer and for the help of those that they watch over. And this is particularly why in verse 18, this author of the letter to the Hebrews says, pray for us, because he knows that he needs prayer. He knows that he needs the intercession of those that he cares for on his behalf. He believes in the efficacy of their communion with God in prayer on his behalf. And he knows that even as much as he wants to do well for them and set a good example for them, that he also needs their prayer to enable him by God's power to do the same. Christ-shaped leaders watch over souls with joy and they live nobly among their brothers and sisters as living examples of maturity in Christ, worthy of imitation. They don't do this because they're special. Your leaders aren't special. Don't do this because God has made us different than he's made anyone else. Christ-shaped leaders do all of this. They watch over souls with joy. They live nobly among their brothers and sisters because Jesus cares for his church. They do it because they have an example to follow. The example who is Christ. In the same way that Christ-shaped followers submit to their leaders because Jesus sets an example of submission to the Father's will, so also Christ-shaped leaders care for souls, and and set an example because Jesus does that for his church. For a moment, think about what kind of leader is Jesus. How does he care for those who belong to him? 
In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, Jesus says, and this is a, a verse that we've, we, I, I feel like we, we've referred to often, but it's, so, it's just so pertinent, so important for us to understand. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll make you work harder for your salvation. No. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am harsh and arrogant. No, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What kind of leader is Jesus? Gentle and lowly, caring for those with joy that he has called to himself. Christian author Dane Ortland says in his recent book, Gentle and Lowly, he says, the high and holy Christ does not cringe at reaching out and touching dirty sinners and numbed sufferers. Such embraces precisely what he loves to do. He cannot bear to hold back. And we naturally think of Jesus touching us the way that a little boy reaches out to touch a slug for the first time. Face all screwed up, cautiously extending an arm, giving a yelp of disgust and immediately withdrawing. We picture the risen Christ approaching us with a severe and sour disposition, but this is not how Jesus is revealed to us as a leader in Scripture. The God revealed in Scripture deconstructs our intuitive predilections and startles us with the one whose infinitude of perfections is matched by his infinitude of gentleness. Indeed, his perfections include his perfect gentleness. Gentle and lowly. This is who Jesus is. It is his very heart. Jesus himself said so. Christ-shaped leaders Watch over souls with joy and live nobly among their brothers and sisters because Jesus sets the example for us in so doing. The relationship between church leaders and their brothers and sisters in Christ is fundamentally different. It is fundamentally different from every other organizational relationship in all of the world because the person of Jesus, his death for our sins, our collective faith in him changes how we see the world and how we relate to each other. The church is not like Amazon. Jeff Bezos is not willing to give his life for the good of his employees. And yet Jesus, gentle and lowly, lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus is our example for gentle leadership. And Jesus is our example for willing submission. He has paid the ransom for all of our sins, leaders and followers alike, and for the sins that we commit as leaders and followers. He has called us all to faith in himself. He says, look to me, come to me. Faith in Christ denies self. It picks up our cross. It follows after Jesus so that we can do precisely what God in his word in Hebrews 13, verses 17 through 19 has called us to do. So that we can relate to one another, not for what we can get from each other, but for how we can highlight the person and character of Christ together. You see how the way that the church relates to one another relates to itself as a picture of, of Jesus and all that he is? As leaders watch over souls with joy and live nobly among their brothers and sisters and as followers, as Christians within the church, follow their leaders and submit to their authority of counsel, we are, we are giving a picture to the rest of the world of what it looks like when a whole people embodies the character of Christ. Christ is a gentle leader, And he submits to the Father's will. And we demonstrate who Jesus is and the beauty of who Jesus is as we live together in community as Christians. 
our advantage as followers of Jesus is not having a superior organizational system for leaders and followers and a hierarchy of leadership and, 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 and pathways and training for, for rising in the ranks. No, that's not our advantage as Christians. Our advantage as Christians is having Christ as our chief shepherd. Apart from him, we cannot submit to our leaders and we will not care for, soul, for the souls of those that we have led. But in Christ, with Christ, because of Christ, in us, we can tangibly display all of the glories of the gospel as we live among one another. The glorious truth of the gospel is that Jesus, the very Son of God, who had every right to maintain His place in heaven next to the Father, gave that up to give His life for the redemption of souls. To be born a man, to live without sin, to know everything that it is to be human, and yet to do that without ever once rebelling against God's will, and then to take his perfect life and offer it as a sacrifice for the sins of people like you and I who have rebelliously acted as traitors against God and his will for us. This same Jesus did not stay dead but was raised from the tomb to give life and hope and and the promise of resurrection for every person that trusts in Him. And for those who trust in Him, His life is the very example for how we live among one another, to show the world the glories of the gospel. Dear friend, if you are not yet in Christ, if you have not trusted this Jesus, you cannot live this way among His community of believers, His community of followers. In fact, you're not yet a part of that community until you trust him. So I invite you, friend, come into this gospel-proclaiming community by trusting Jesus today, recognizing that there's a holy God who has made you in his image to know and love and worship him, and that you, by your own desires, your own disposition, have rebelled against his rightful rule and reign in your life. See your need for a Savior. See your need for forgiveness, and come to Jesus the eternal Son of God, who gave his life in your place and was raised from the dead. Say, Jesus, you, you are my master. You are my commander. You are Lord of my life and Savior of my soul. All my life is yours. Now, lead me to live in holiness. Lead me to live in in love and in grace in the community of your your flock. Friend, if you don't know Christ this way and you long to be a part of a, a community that reflects this beautiful and complex picture of who Jesus is, trust Christ today. Trust Him today. Turn from your sins in your heart. Turn to Jesus in faith. Give Him your whole life in obedience to Him. and Be changed. Be made to live spiritually. And dear friend, don't make that a private decision, but let somebody know. Let a brother or sister sitting next to you this morning. As we're dismissed in a moment, I'll be greeting folks outside. Uh, Pull me aside and let me know, Pastor, I need to give my life to Jesus this way. I want to be a part of this community that glorifies God because we've been saved by him. Let somebody know so that we can come alongside you, help you grow in Christ, be the people that God has called us to be. The church's advantage is the character of Christ. Dear friends, let let us embrace and reflect that in all that we do together as we proclaim the gospel to the world. Will you pray with me?